FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Hello, I'm Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic, and with me today is Dr. Sharon Mulvey, who um, is a colleague and director of the Women's Heart Clinic, and um, we're going to deal with the always controversial and always topical subject is what are the differences between men and women in heart disease? Are they real? Are they perceived? Welcome, Sharon. Thanks, Bernard. And it's truly a pleasure to be here and to discuss this very topical issue. You know, um, I guess the reason we should step back and think, why wouldn't there be differences in a woman's heart and female cardiovascular physiology in right. comparison to male? I think that we haven't thought about it much because we've generally studied men, and we don't know a lot about uh, female cardiovascular physiology. I mean, this is the, I mean, this is very true. I mean, it's only recently that, that we've seen women in randomized trials of coronary disease and revascularization uh, enrolled in the proportion to which they. Um, receive the, I mean, experience the disease. I mean, the early trials basically were in white Caucasian men. Exactly. Across the board, preventative trials, secondary preventative trials, and interventional type trials. And when you think about it, you know, women are um, asked to do a different physiologic function in their lives, and so their biological systems might be a little bit different. Uh, different. Uh, for example, you know, when we think of uh, sex-specific type diseases, we think of cardiovascular disease that might be unique to one sex. Well, surely something like pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia and toxemia is a definite sex-specific disease seen only in women. And I don't think men can get no, pregnant. No, not uh, that I've heard of I recently. I don't think I've heard of any reports. <laughs> You'd know about it, Bernard, if that was the case. <laughs> At any rate, um, we have recently recognized that, indeed, the fact of having pregnancy-induced uh, hypertension, toxemia or preeclampsia, is a forebearer for developing cardiovascular disease. It is yeah. now listed as a cardiovascular disease risk factor. Yeah. yeah. Similarly, at the other end of the spectrum, menopausal uh, time period, well, men don't exactly go through the vasomotor distress that women do at that time, and clearly that's a vascular entity. I think they go through midlife crises, but I don't think they go <laughs> through them with, with vasomotor symptoms. Right, at least not primarily. Yeah. They secondarily yeah. probably experience it through their yeah. um, significant others. But so clearly the vascular system in the cardiovascular uh, physiology is going to be different. The vascular biology, and not only because there are genetic differences, the, the um, fact that women have two Xs, one is inactivated, and that raises a whole complexity of potential. And then there's the hormonal milieu, not just to pregnancy, Precisely. but of the menstrual cycle, exactly. which may interact with arrhythmias and other Throughout their other lives, parameters. Throughout their lives, women are exposed to the hormonal influences that are different from men. And perhaps we think about it in the diseases that are the symptomatic manifestations that we see women present in our offices every day. Women are more likely to have primary pulmonary hypertension, to have Raynaud's phenomenon, to have migraines, a vasospastic disorder, to have microvascular disease or small vessel disease. I want to come back to that because I think we've learned a lot here from the WISE trial study, WISE study. But um, other, other diseases that are much, much more common in women are, are um, coronary artery dissection and not just in pregnancy. I mean, outside pregnancy. You're thinking of spontaneous coronary dissection. Yeah, exactly. and the association yeah. with fibromuscular dysplasia that uh, our colleague uh, Rajiv Galati has just described in circulation. Exactly. And that's interesting. It's probably, I think, 
Oh, nine to ten to one. Yes, indeed. Actually, I just interviewed Sharon Hayes in a podcast just a couple of weeks ago, and she was uh, presenting their data. And it is about 80% uh, female, uh, the diagnosis of SCAD. Uh, And most women, not not all, uh, actually I shouldn't say most, but a good percentage, I think it was about 30 to 40% were in the peripartum uh, period. With men, when they present with SCAD, it's usually in association with uh, intense exercise, something yeah. that might be more jarring. But for women, it seems to be more potentially of a hormonal influence. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, we do think there's um, an association with fibromuscular dysplasia, and I think it is a systemic disease. Exactly. Before we get on to Syndrome women. X, which is, I, I think, um, a fascinating and complex condition, I think one point that needs to be made is uh, I, I thought a few years back that the incidence of false positive stress tests was much higher in women and that therefore you would proceed to straight to an imaging study. But my understanding is that a lot of a great deal of that data was based upon comparisons of treadmill testing in men age 60 or men age 50 with women age 50. And under Bayesian principles, women age 50 have less coronary disease than men age 50 and therefore they're more likely to have more false positives. And so I think that the perception that stress testing wasn't that accurate in women, in women was really based upon pre-test. an underappreciation of the pretest likelihood. But given that, would it be fair to say that um, an exercise ECG is probably not as helpful in women that do not have a completely normal resting ECG? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's guidelines for sure to do an imaging stress test if the resting ECG is not normal. It actually also is guidelines at the current time that even even in women that have a normal uh, uh, resting electrocardiogram that we should not do, the corollary being not do imaging stress testing. I think a lot of us are a little not quite committed on that just yet, even though that is totally guidelines, because many times we find that the sensitivity for detection of maybe ischemic heart disease, not necessarily obstructive coronary artery disease, but ischemic heart disease is going to be less in women than it is in men, unless we have imaging. I also think there's still a specificity issue, too. I mean, I think the younger the woman, the younger the patient, the uh, the the more catecholamine, sympathetic tone, and and I tend to go to an imaging study. Yeah, let's go on to syndrome X, and uh, I mean it, it is interesting that I think through Noel Berry Mertz and her investigators in the Wise right. study, which uh, was not a trial but a study, which I actually chaired that DSMB for years. It was fascinating to see how much we've learned over mm-hmm. ten years. I remember when this study was being designed, I thought, well, we're going to they're going to enroll a, a large number of women with non-cardiac chest pain, I'm not sure what it's going to mean, but we've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So summarize it's it a huge, for us. I mean, it's a, a huge problem. Contribution. And it's been that, actually, the Women's and Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation has been a, a huge contribution to understanding that, indeed, coronary disease is not the same necessarily in men as in women and, and in men. Yeah. And um, the interesting thing was in that trial... Uh, Dr. Barry Mertz and her colleagues found that when patients with the similar type of ischemic symptomatology, similar chest pain symptoms, went to the cath lab, there was only about a third of them that had significant significant obstructive coronary disease. About another third had non-obstructive placking type disease, but it wasn't significant enough. And the balance had really normal coronaries. And so they studied that group, and what they found was the majority of those individuals had abnormal microvascular 
cardiovascular function based on um, P31 testing and had a definite evidence of microvascular disease. Acetylcholine induced. Yes, acetylcholine, um, coronary physiology testing as well, exactly. So that, that was, I think, very enlightening to us. And moreover, they found that the group of women that were appropriately treated, if they had evidence not in the absence of obstructive coronary disease, but had evidence of abnormal coronary physiology, that those women did better in the outcome. And certainly those women that had persistent angina and their symptoms weren't resolved, they did worse. Now they have a much higher incidence of late cardiac coronary events. Yes. Before we get onto the treatment, and I, and I would like to spend a bit of time on that, if I see a patient with a classic history, or let's say not totally typical history of angina, but it's exertional, chest pain, sounds like angina, the occasional episodes at rest that may be a little atypical, but it's a pretty good history of, of angina, and I do a stress test, and it's normal. Whether it be an imaging study or even just an exercise ECG, it's normal. Or let's, for the sake of argument, add an imaging study. Uh, look at their coronaries, and their coronaries are normal. Can I make the diagnosis then of syndrome X or microvascular angina, or do I have to show that there is an element of endothelial dysfunction based upon acetylcholine? Or do I have to have a positive stress test? Right. Or can I, I just say, look, this is what you've got, and now we're going to treat it? You know, I think that most folks that do have microvascular disease do have abnormal stress tests. It's just when we send them to the cath lab and look specifically for classic coronary obstructive disease, we don't find it. So... Most of the patients that end up having microvascular disease actually and microvascular dysfunction usually have abnormal stress tests. It's just that the angiographic evidence was not there. And that happens yeah, more often it, in women. But can I still give, them that, <laughs> give them that label even if the stress test is not abnormal? Because yeah. I often find that sometimes the, the exercise performance is submaximal. Yeah, there may yeah, be, yeah. given all those but factors. I mean, if they've got that history and they've got normal coronaries, I think you have to individualize for that patient as well. So if they have risk factors, you're certainly going to treat their risk factors. You're going to optimize their um, milieu as far as their microvascular milieu would be to try to reduce any chance that they would have um, any evidence of uh, cardiovascular issues. Because uh, you know, it's very difficult to to find another reason for the pain. For the pain. Well, I mean, sometimes they uh, have GERD. Or, I mean, yeah, provided that you've ruled all those things out uh, and you've given them the trial. GERD, GERD is... No, GERD is... Is, it's always the next step. Oh, it's not the heart. It must be the esophagus. But, you know, good pain is different. Uh, in some folks. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. In some folks. I, I think it's tricky. I really do think it's tricky, Bernard, and I think you have to individualize, as you well know, for every patient. But I, I do think that this, at least in the women's heart clinic, we see the opposite scenario. We see women that come that have symptoms, that we send them for a stress test. It's positive. Then we send them to the cath lab. They say, oh, false positive stress test, no obstructive okay. coronary disease. And those are the ones that I think microvascular angina in. And then we have the option of sending them back to the cath lab and doing coronary physiology testing, you know, acetylcholine testing. And So for that patient, and I agree, I, I think that's unambiguous. I mean, we can make a firm diagnosis. You've emphasized that we've got to treat the risk factors, and a lot of them are hypertensive, and um, we'll do that. Pharmacologically, how do you go about it? Because... The responses to antianginals are different. Right. And right. so uh, we're, we're going to manage the risk factors and then just take us through step by step how you start them off. You've given them the diagnosis. We're optimizing risk factors. How do you start treating them? Right. I think that the best thing to do is to 
think of it as a vasoactive disease to a certain okay. extent. And so we generally have our patients on calcium channel blockers. Um, High doses do they need? Um, it depends. Many of these women are um, uh, like normal tensive or even uh, low normal <laughs> tensive, so they don't tolerate a lot of high doses of really vasoactive drugs. And That's any calcium channel factor. blocker that you would prefer? I think that we usually actually go with cardism uh, because of the fact that I find that uh, some women end up with peripheral edema yep. with uh, Norvat, with uh, um, uh, amlodipine, and uh, also um, the constipation issues going yep. the other direction with verapamil. So usually um, uh, we, we go with deltaism as, as the first approach in well, that direction. And um, beta blockers? You know, there is some evidence that beta blockers, you know, theoretically are contraindicated, but there's also some possibility because of beta function peripherally that it may actually be beneficial. It's not my first-line choice. Um, some of my colleagues do use beta blockers, but I would prefer to, yeah. my next choice would be a nitrate. Yeah, I, my, my impression was that beta blockers probably are not terribly yeah, I, effective. I, I, I and don't. I think they, I think this is a subset that gets side effects to fatigue yes. and everything. So nitrates, um, prophylactically, sublingually, Yes. So I long acting nitrates all of the above. It's very valuable if your patient tells you that their chest pain goes away with sublingual nitroglycerin. Then you know that it's really reasonable to go ahead with a long acting nitrate. Right. And uh, whether you choose to have a isosorbide mononitrate as the long acting agent or alternatively it is certainly reasonable to use a patch. And I've had a lot of women that actually don't absorb the long acting nitrate uh, tablets. They've seen them in their stools. And hmm. so that's, you know, I mean not a lot but several and you that. switch them to a patch and the patch actually works very nicely. And you nicely. take it off late afternoon? It depends on, again, what their individual um, pain pattern is. If they have usually uh, daytime discomfort, daytime angina, then, you know, it's on for the 12 hours during okay. the daytime hours. If it's more of a nocturnal issue, then I would put on at night and take it off so in the morning. So they come back and say, well, you know, I'm really a little better, but not much. Next right. step. Right. So the next step is then um, I, often, I ask them. It's very important. And you'll see that a lot of these women are perimenopausal. And if they are actually having profound vasomotor symptoms and they are in their uh, early menopause, I will ask them, are you on hormone therapy? And most of them are not. And I have seen some that have uh, actually, again, this is anecdotal, but some that with um, treatment of their vasomotor symptoms with appropriate hormone therapy, they have resolved their um, microvascular, hmm. presumed microvascular anginal uh, symptoms. That's interesting. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. What about L-arginine? So L-arginine is another uh, that we certainly go to. Um, you know, all the trials that uh, Amir Lerman and uh, uh, his uh, group at, uh, here have, have done would suggest that that could be useful. I don't know the exact number, but I think that maybe 50%, 60% will find some benefit from that. It is a bit tricky. They're big tablets. they got to take a lot of them, but some folks seem to. I've never been overly impressed, but some, if they stop it, feel that it was better than when they were on it. Sharon, lastly, um, there was the theory that some some subsets of patients with microvascular or syndrome X microvascular angina have an altered pain threshold based mm -hmm. upon I think um, there was work done at N NHLBI I think that they put in a temporary pacemaker and they were very aware of pacemaker stimuli and right cardiac and, and nociception yeah. having more and so desimipropine yeah. in 
in small doses, well below the antidepressant dose. Mm -hmm. Have you had any luck with that? I mean, yes, yes, I do use that, and it has been very helpful in some patients. And you're absolutely right. Small doses, generally not more than 10 milligrams at nighttime, given in at nighttime, and that can be very helpful. I mean, sometimes that kind of the spectrum, I think, starts to blend a little bit with fibromyalgia, perhaps, and those other issues. And I don't think we can really sort all that out. But it's not going to be harmful, and it could be potentially beneficial. I think, um, obviously, I'm, I'm advertising on your behalf, but I think it's great to have a women's health clinic because it's very time-consuming. There are complex issues. I think uh, women probably understand them uh, a lot better than men, and um, I think it's very nice to have it as a facility to use once one's made the diagnosis. I, f- I find it very helpful. Well, I'm glad, and we're glad to be there to to help you and help all of our colleagues. I think that one of the main messages that I'd like to leave us with today is that it is important to realize that, you know, women cardiovascular are not necessarily just like men. We don't have a lot of data, as you started out very appropriately saying. The studies have generally, all the research has been, you know, skewed towards uh, men. And I think that if you have something in a woman that is particularly a positive functional study, and then there's no evidence of anatomic obstructive coronary disease go with that, we have to think not that it's just a false positive, that there is likely something else going on here. And whether we call it microvascular disease or syndrome X or whatever, I'm not sure what the right label is, but we have to recognize that in these women, they have a worse prognosis if their chronic persistent angina pattern is not treated, and therefore we must do everything to optimize their risk factors and then think about the treatment strategies that we've just discussed. I, I, think, um, I, I think we've changed. I think in the last uh, 10 years ago, we we said, oh, well, this is non-cardiac chest pain. I think now, and why is Noel Berry Mertz has really made a great contribution in oh, that yeah. study? I mean, I think we now recognize this. Absolutely. Probably not as to the extent we should, but it, it's certainly changing. Thank we you very much, We need more data, Sharon. though. <laughs> okay. Mm. Thank you, Bernard. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.